Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go, here we go. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Just one single tongue coming at you again. A little bit tardy this week, I apologize. I felt real bad about it, actually. Um, it was the one, um, the one Wednesday when I wasn't able to release a solo episode for you guys. It, today's Friday, so... So, you know, I was thinking about that, you know, life gets busy and there's not always an opportunity to, to do something like this, but I've been really good about it and uh, so I failed this week, so I thought about it yesterday, what could I do, could I throw something together, and I didn't, really, I didn't think that was fair either. So I have a solution for you that I hope will work, it'll be a little different than what we've done uh, so far, but I'll give you a little background, so... Years ago, when I uh, when I first had a mystic ex- experience, which we've talked about on the podcast, I got sort of inspired to do the podcast, and I thought that what I might do is, well, at first I thought maybe I'd write something and publish it, and maybe I will, maybe I still will. Um, then I thought, well, maybe it would be better if I could if I could record it and do it as a podcast. So I love podcasts, and I'm sure you guys do too. But I hadn't been doing these, like, written out, or I'm sitting here reading to you. And that's kind of what I did. Is like, at first I thought I would, I'd type this out, I'd get my ideas organized, and then I'd find a way of uh, reading it where it didn't sound like it was rehearsed. But guess what? That's super hard to do. Maybe it's impossible. Maybe not. I mean, some people, some people are really good at it. Uh, but it's hard to make it sound natural. Also, I have this tendency of writing like a little bit flowery you know if you read my writing you you would agree it's kind of in, it's influenced by a lot of the philosophy that I read when I was in college and I was really I guess I was trying to sound smart maybe or I was, I was trying to follow in the footsteps of these other people that were trying to sound smart and it's that's something that's it's wordy and it's hard for me to get rid of that habit so so anyway, I didn't have anything like willy-nilly that I wanted to bring to you, but what I did what I did find is all of this stuff that I wrote down when I was originally thinking about starting the podcast uh, before before the idea of two tongues, you know, when it was probably just going to be me. And I've got like eight or ten of these things written out, and I thought that's what I could do. I'll just you know, as embarrassing as it might be, I'm just going to read to you. Part one of what the original Two Tongues podcast <laughs> would have been had I done it at the time. And truth be told, I'm glad I didn't. I love having Kyle as a partner on here. I love having guests. 
Um, I love the natural conversations, the, the arguments, the debates. Um, I love it. Um, this would not have had any of that. But, you know, it was something that was well thought out, you know, pretty well written, I guess. Uh, may you be the judge, I don't know. But uh, I think I'll just read it to you. So the first one I did was something called Perception and Intuition, just a short little essay. And as you can imagine, I had that mystic experience that we've talked about. Um, we did an episode on it not long ago, actually, so maybe this is kind of timely. And one of the things that came about from that experience was recognizing how how sure you are about your perceptions and the way the world seems, because you lived it your whole life, you, you learned it, everything, you know, seems to kind of correspond to what you expect most of the time. We all, we all kind of get into this uh, skeptic's disease to to call back to the um, part two of the God's Debris podcast we did. We fall victim to the skeptic's disease where we realize we're right about things so often and we can predict things so often that we sort of begin to think that we're infallible. We start to begin to think that we know everything. We know how, how it's going to go. We know right from wrong. We know what to expect. And uh, when you have a mystic experience, it's, it's so different from any of that stuff that you're so sure about that you really can't help but start to wonder, how real are our perceptions? Um, are we missing something huge in our day-to-day experience of the world? You know, just what in the world's going on? And that inspired this that inspired this little essay. Perception and, and intuition is what it's called. Not, not perception and illusion. But you could, you, you could, you could go either way. Um, all right, so I'm just going to try. And forgive me, but here it goes. I remember what was perhaps my first philosophical thought as a child. Maybe you've had this thought or something like it. It was, I wonder if the colors I see are exactly the same as those that others see. I recall reasoning that those things I see as red, flowers, blood, strawberries, etc., I would naturally refer to as red. But others seeing the same objects may very well see what I would call blue. And all things that possess the property of redness, I would see red, and they would see blue. There would be no reason to ever question what we were experiencing different colors or different realities, because we're using the same word to describe our mutual experience. What red is to another person would be forever unknowable to me. The mystery of this question would only grow with time. Coming to know, for instance, that some people are colorblind and see the world differently than others. Or to know that the unique structure of our eyes, our rods and cones, they determine what colors we're capable of seeing. Or better still, that there is more to the spectrum of light extending both below the ultraviolet and above the infrared, the, the narrow band of visible of light that's visible to us, that if our eyes could only see them, would illuminate the world in a way we could not have previously conceived. These things inevitably lead to more questions. Does the unknowable problem of perception extend to our other senses? What about how things taste, feel, smell? And after some contemplation, eventually we uncover the foundation of each of these seemingly separate questions. The question is, are my perceptions of the world around me correct? Are they even real? 
if I cannot say that others experience the world the way that I do, how can I ever know that my perceptions are correct? How do I know if they reflect the way the world really is? Further still, how can I ever know that my perceptions are not complete illusion? It seems that the best we can assume is that the objects of our perceptions, referencing in the world things like the sun, stars, people, trees, they're the same objects being referenced by others, even if perceived entirely differently. This assumption would explain how we can successfully navigate the world, how we can work cooperatively together, and even how and perhaps why language was developed in the first place. That is to say, that language provides a reasonably uniform system of symbols that represent objects in the world, so that we can understand one another in spite of being entirely unable to know what another person is experiencing. Now, it can be seen that we are leaving the question of sense perception in favor of a broader one, that of our unique individual experience of the world, our subjective experience. This holds all the same dangers, however. Consider our ordinary experience of the world compared to those we dream, for instance. Consider how our experiences are changed by fever, drug intoxication, or mental illness. Consider a patient suffering from severe delusions, hallucinations, etc. How can we ever know which experience of the world is correct, or whether any of them are beyond mere illusion? So long as we remain unable to experience the experience of others, we can never know how our perceptions of the world compare. We cannot know if they are identical, similar, or entirely different. But even if we could, hypothetically, share in others' experience, aren't we left with the same unsatisfactory answer about the nature of the world around us? Aren't we still left wondering if our perceptions are a true reflection of reality or just an illusion? See, even if we discover, as unlikely as this would be, that everyone's perception is absolutely identical, how can we say that this is anything more than a shared delusion? What about our perceptions being identical gives us grounds to believe that the objects being perceived are as they seem to be? Just as with the question of redness, we find ourselves satisfied with shared symbols rather than shared experience. We represent our experience using symbols whose meanings we more or less agree upon and carry on living our lives without further questioning the experience behind the symbols. We assume, for better or worse, that our experiences and the meaning corresponding to each are identical or similar enough to justify the belief that the world is as it seems to be. But what if it's not? Human reason through science and philosophy before that have deepened this mystery. With the advent of the telescope and microscope, for instance, we have revealed levels of reality, both large and small, that were imperceptible to us before. We now know, for instance, that there is an expanding fabric of space and time that extends beyond our ability to measure, likely infinite, and contains within it immeasurable forms of matter and energy 
that are governed by forces we only vaguely understand. We also know that our, our very own bodies are composed of a, a veritable ecosystem of parasites, bacteria, viruses, and living cells, which exist as a unified being somehow all of which were unknown to us for the majority of human history. We have always existed this way, but only now realize it. Beyond this, we now know that all matter, both living and not, are composed of nothing more than a specific arrangement of atoms. Of course, atoms, we've learned, are nothing more than a form of energy, which is convertible into matter. That's E equals MC squared, you guys. Further still, we know that the subatomic particles that are made from that they are made from exist in a quantum state unlike anything we experience in the world. They exist in a state of probability, whatever that means. They flash in and out of being and cannot even be said to exist as subject to space and time. The physicist Niels Bohr, who helped to establish the science of quantum mechanics, summarized the problem bluntly. Niels Bohr said, Everything we call real is made of things that cannot be regarded as real. Whew. The history of human thought is peppered with philosophies that attempt to reconcile reality to perception, or to somehow discover the nature of reality as it really exists. At, the, at very nearly the beginning of Western philosophy, Plato discussed what he called the world of forms. The form, to Plato, was the ultimate, the true reality that lay behind our perceptions. As an example, Plato might speak of beauty as a concept which exists in the world of forms, but is seen manifest in our perceptions of things like a song, a sunset, a body, there is, of course, not much in common in our experience of a song and of a sunset, but intuitively we understand the subtle truth that each displays beauty. It is not immediately clear what is common between these two experiences that we recognize as beautiful. But it cannot be denied that they do share this property. This is the essence or essential quality of beauty. This is the form of beauty which Plato suggests is the thing that actually exists. Whew, buddy. The object, the sun or the song, they're merely perceptions. They're semi-illusory vehicles by which we can experience the real form of beauty. We see the same concept mirrored by later philosophers such as Immanuel Kant, who made a distinction between what he called the phenomena, or things as they appear, and the noumena, which, which is things as they are. We even see this distinction illustrated in the ancient Hindu Upanishads, which speak of vidya, which means knowledge of the changeless reality, versus avidya, which is knowledge of the universe. Even in our modern scientific paradigm, we see the same thing repeated. Physicists discuss the way the world seems governed by the laws of classical or Newtonian mechanics, versus the way the world fundamentally is, governed by an entirely different set of laws known as quantum mechanics. The popular physicist Brian Greene explains it this way. He says, If you use Newton's ideas in the realm of particles, 
you get wrong predictions. So whether we speak of Plato, Kant, the Upanishads, or quantum physics, the question being examined is the same. It is the so-called veil of perception that we seem to exist beneath. It is the quest to lift the veil and experience reality as it truly is, beyond perception. That has always been the goal. It is the quest for true knowledge, to look out at existence with perfect sight and experience what really is. The desire to remove illusion and experience the ultimate truth runs so deep in human consciousness that it cannot be separated from what it means to be human. It seems there has never been a time when human beings did not recognize the limits of their perception and desire to know what lay beyond them. From the very earliest relics of human history, we find evidence of religious sentiments. The burials of archaic humans, Neanderthals, Homo erectus, etc., that display a belief in an afterlife. The Neolithic painted caves of France and Spain that display the fullness of abstract and symbolic thought. And the ancient representations of the generative force of nature seen in the Venus figurines from Europe and Asia all point to the quest for ultimate truth at the very genesis of human culture, now 30,000 years ago. Ultimate truth is given the name God, and the quest for God becomes myth, ritual, religion, philosophy, and science. There are, of course, two fundamental questions that cannot be answered through experience, but are continually reinforced by it. They are therefore eternally recurring and unavoidable. At some point in our lives, we cannot help but ask the questions that the quest for the ultimate seeks to answer. Here, 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 are, the, here are the two questions. One of them is the phenomenon of existence. And the second one is the phenomenon of life. We wish to know how and why the universe exists and how and why we exist. These are the fundamental questions which rest in each of our hearts and yet remain perennially unanswered. Now, given the checkered history of organized religion and the, and the great achievements of the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution, it has largely fallen out of fashion to continue the quest for the ultimate through religion, or even philosophy for that matter. In our modern world, the quest has become dominated by empirical science which concerns itself strictly with the study of matter, energy, and the measurable, observable forces of nature. From this endeavor, we have benefited beyond imagining, and yet have not come any closer to our goal. We still have no conclusive answers to the phenomenon of existence or the phenomena of life. With all our great strides in understanding, and the development of technologies which reveal the very largest and smallest realms of being, we are no closer to our goal. Now it's for this reason that I return to religion to discover if there is something in that pursuit resolved to the dustbin of history, which may be the treasure we've been seeking all along. In his work, Time and Eternity, Princeton professor of philosophy W. Stacy delves into this very question. 
He pushes back powerfully against the paradigm of materialism that has diminished religious thought so effectively in our modern world. By removing the mythic and dogmatic elements of organized religion from the discussion altogether. He takes no interest in rationalizing religious beliefs or defending religious claims. Instead, he focuses on what he believes to be the originating force behind all religious feeling and something latent in the psychology of all human beings, that of the mystic experience. If we do not allow ourselves to be pulled into historical or cultural conflicts of organized religion and avoid discussions of mythological interpretation, we find a deeper and more fundamental concept shared by all religious traditions. At the heart of religion, we find evidence of an experience. An experience which leaves one's consciousness impressed with certain ultimate truths of reality. This is what Stacy calls the mystic experience and describes it as a moment, overwhelming and awe-inspiring, which affirms the unity of existence and disturbs the ordinary perception of space and time. It is the experience of personally sharing your being with the ultimate, or, more accurately, realizing that you are and have always been indistinct from the ultimate. The mystic experience is the temporary pulling back of the veil of perception and discovering beyond what you never expected to see. Yourself looking back. In other words, in the mystic experience, you recognize that the thing that you are is the answer to both the phenomena of existence and the phenomena of life. Stacy goes to great lengths to explain how language and reason have muddied the waters of the religious approach to the ultimate. He explains how the apparent contradictions in the mystic experience, fundamental to the experience, provide the rational mind all it needs to dismiss this method of discovery. The contradictions he is referring to are what he calls the negative divine. A few examples will help illustrate. You may recognize this type of fundamental contradiction, perhaps in the Christian claim that God is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, or that God is simultaneously one being and three beings, you know, the Trinity. From the Eastern traditions, you can see examples in the Upanishads where God is described as, quote, within all beings and outside of them. In the Taoist tradition of China, God is called, quote, the form of the formless and the image of nothingness. In all of these examples, there is a claim being asserted and denied simultaneously. The contradiction in these statements is the negative divine, which Stacy asserts is where their meaning lies. It is what cannot be said, but only intuited from these statements, that is important. God cannot both be the beginning and the end, both form and formless. That is, of course, if we assume God is anything like the world we can experience. What if God is unlike anything we, we experience in the world? This is not a claim that can receive much resistance. What if God, or the ultimate truth, is unknowable, even if it does exist? If so then might we say that being unknowable is a property of God, a property of ultimate truth? 
But how can a tr- how can truth be unknowable? What could this mean? What this means, like any religious question, cannot be understood through the observable facts of the world. Our perceptions, as we've noted, cannot be relied on to reveal knowledge of the way the world really is. Instead, we must do what Stacy prescribes and use our faculty of intuition, which validates our religious feelings. It is not through the facts of the world that we understand what is meant by the image of nothingness. It is through intuition that we recognize, without understanding, that there is something which can be the image of nothingness. There is some meaning in the contradiction that is not extinguished by the polarity of opposing concepts. Stacy explains the validity of intuition as a legitimate faculty for understanding by using as an analogy an entirely different field, that of art. For those that may be skeptical about relying on intuition, Stacy asks uh, them to consider their own experience of art. As you recall seeing a painting or hearing a song that elicited an emotional response, you might ask yourself, what about the object elicited that response? We've all been drawn into a song, for instance, that weeps without words and causes the listener to reflect upon tragedy. What causes this? Is their emotion somehow packaged into the notes? Stacy would say, it is through your intuition that you recognize the emotional value of the song. You are struck by or impressed by a truth in the song that does not exist in the notes, but somehow behind them. In the same way, it is through intuition that we are struck with the truth of religious feelings. The psychologist Jordan Peterson lectured on our experience of art in the following way. He's describing a museum here. He says, quote, There were billions of dollars of art in that room. That museum is on some of the most expensive real estate in the world. There's a tremendous amount of time and effort spent on producing the museum and fortifying it and guarding it. And then people from all over the world make pilgrimages to stand in front of it. And what they are looking at, they do not understand. So what the hell are they doing there? The answer is, the pictures speak to their soul but not in a language they understand. But that's okay, because we don't understand ourselves. That's obvious. We're more than we understand by a tremendous margin, and we're trying to understand ourselves. And the artists and mystics are at the vanguard of the development of that understanding. Jordan Peterson, everyone. We could go a step further and ask how intuition plays a role in symbolic systems. If we leave art for language, we can see the same sort of thing play out. Take the word friend, for instance. We know that we are representing an object we experience in the world, in this case a friend, using a symbol. Now the word or symbol is meant to have a shared meaning to those using it. A dictionary might say that a friend is another person or creature to whom both parties place value in order to cooperate for one another's mutual benefit or satisfaction. This may be an incomplete or cursory definition among many others. But even if we accept it, is there meaning not contained in the definition, but only experienced by intuition? 
I would argue that even with this seemingly straightforward symbol, we intuit many other things more difficult to put into words. Things like reciprocated love, mutual respect, the sacrificial impulse and feeling of responsibility. In this way, using the facts of the world, I might say that a friend is someone who cares for my well-being. Through intuition, however, I could say that a friend is someone who recognizes, without understanding, that he and I are not distinct from one another. A friend is another creature who has become, in some ill-defined way, myself. Through the facts of the world, a friend cares for me because he wishes to be cared for by me, because it enhances his social network, etc. Through intuition, he cares for me because he recognizes, without understanding, that he and I are the same. You would not say that the definition of the word friend has anything to do with the experience of shared consciousness, but you cannot help but intuit it just the same. The faculty of intuition is fundamental to the human experience. It is a method of understanding that lies behind the level of sense experience and of logic, which informs our consciousness of the unspoken, immaterial meaning behind our experiences. Our senses tell us what our perceptions of the world are. Our intuition, on the other hand, hints at the ultimate reality behind them. When a Christian says that God is love, for instance, Stacy explains he does not literally mean that God, the source of all existence, is somehow synonymous with the feeling associated with the emotional state we call love. Instead, the meaning in this statement is intuitive, laying behind the words themselves. The intuitive meaning is not capable of being fully captured in language. It is something like, the thing which God is, is something fundamentally like what love is. There is nothing about the facts of the world that validate the claim that God is love. And yet, our intuition rings true nonetheless. That is the power of intuition. To recognize that the statement, God is love, is somehow more true than the statement, God is hate. And that's not derived from reason. And yet, all who, re all who hear this will feel the tug of intuition pulling them towards the former. Now, I labor the point of intuition and the limits of our symbolic representations of the world in order to encourage you to think flexibly as we continue our discussion. In the episodes that follow, I will speak to my own mystic experience and will attempt to share the intuitions of that experience and their implications as best as I am able. I cannot hope to be successful, however, without the listener's cooperation and understanding of the following. I have no choice but to use symbolic language in describing my experience, and the meaning of the ideas expressed are not fully expressible in language, but must be intuited. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of the first part of the essay. It's going to lead into the next bit, which is called The Mystic Experience, and it was my first kind of go at explaining what I thought it meant and what it was like. And I'll read that to you here, uh, you know, shortly. And next time I'm uh, <laughs> scraping the bottom of the barrel for ideas or, or I'm in a time crunch, I'll, I'll read them to you. And I'll, I'll go through all 10 of these things. But what did you think? I mean, for those people who listened to the episode that we did a few, uh, few weeks back uh, where I described my, my 
you know, first mystic experience. You Do you see the connections between the way I described it then and what I just read to you? You know, do you, it, it's so funny to, to me reading back at this, you know, there are things here that I've sort of changed my mind on a little bit or maybe things I wouldn't say today that I said then, but so much of the spirit of that experience is there. Um, it's really, it's really interesting. It holds up for me. Um, so I don't know what you think. Uh, I don't know how well you think that, uh, that goes with the episode, uh, from a few weeks back where I talk about the mystic experience. It'll be funny because it's been so long since I've read these to see how the next part, the mystic experience, how that, uh, how that corresponds to the episode we did uh, not long ago. Um, so, that th- you know, this stuff I wrote down a while ago would have been sometime around 2019. So uh, it's been, been a little while. Uh, in any case, I don't know what you think about it. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Uh, I will try not to read things to you that I've prepared like this uh, too much, but we've got nine more, so deal with it. All right, you guys, thanks for spending the time with me. Uh, let me know what you think until we meet again. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.